Africa Climate Conversations. The podcast. Hello, welcome to this edition of the Africa Climate Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Mogwa. Now, as Africa meets for the Africa Climate Weeks in Nairobi, three other regional climate weeks will be held before the 28th UN Climate Summit. One for Africa that is being held on the 4th to 8th of September, another one for Middle East and North Africa that will be held on 8th to 12th of October, another one for Latin America and the Caribbean, and also Asia-Pacific Climate Week. Now, all these climate weeks are being held ahead of the 28th UN Climate Summit to build the momentum ahead of the COP28, as well as the conclusion of the first global stock take planned to chart the way forward for fulfilling the Paris Agreement key goals. The stock take is happening for the first time ever as a result of the Paris Agreement process. The stock take is supposed to assess the global response to the climate crisis every five years that is evaluating the world's progress on cutting greenhouse gas emissions, building resilience to climate impacts, and securing finance and other support to address the climate crisis. Therefore, I invited David Lesole, who is a seasoned African negotiator on climate change, to understand more about the global stock take and what it means for the African continent. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourself? My name is David Lesole. I'm from Botswana. I have worked uh, for Botswana government for more than 25 years. I'm a climatologist. After that, I went to teach at the University of Botswana on climatology and climate science for 12 years. Now I'm an independent consultant. I've retired, but I've also been a negotiator. First time I participated in the UNFCCC process was just after COP3 in preparation of all of those other agreements. One of the greatest achievements, I think, was to chair the negotiations for the development of the 1.5 degree report, special report. I was chairing the, those negotiations in Bonn and we did agree to ask the research and systematic observations to ask SAPSTA to produce that report. It was very controversial, but I think uh, in all the spirits of compromise within the UNFCCC, we agreed to have that. Yeah, and that's very interesting because I think that your experience and you being there for a very long time, I believe that you're in a position to speak about the global stock take process that we are getting into. And I think also looking back in terms of pre-2020 emissions, I don't know whether you agree with me on that. Yes, it's very important that we continue the momentum. Remember, in the pre-Paris Agreement era, under the Kyoto Protocol Agreement, we had agreed that by 2012, developed countries would have reduced by 5%. And at that time, we thought everybody was going to do what they could. In fact, some countries did pledge to do more, and some of them did do more in terms of emission reduction. I think then we came to the end of what we call the end of Kyoto Protocol lifespan, and we needed a new agreement because it was in there. We had the first commitment period in the Kyoto Protocol, and then we had the second commitment period, but after the second commitment period, we said, no, we, we needed a new agreement, and we needed to review the implementation of climate change agreement. So came the Paris negotiations. First of all, we started in Copenhagen. We didn't do very well. Ultimately, in 2015, we, we agreed to a much more robust thing. Well, let me take a step back. 
because I think it was at the meeting in Durban where Africans decided to agree to come to the party because our argument was we have nothing to lose. We're so small in terms of emissions. We have nothing to lose by accepting to take on some commitments under the new agreement. So in then we go into the Copenhagen agreement and we said, well, for us to do our bit as Africa, we're going to need some help. We're going to need financial, technical, and other support resources. And therefore the 100 billion per year in the first commitment period was agreed in principle in Copenhagen. In fact, we agreed that it will be 10 billion upscaling to 100 billion by 2020. So here we are today in September 2023, and we still don't have much to show in terms of progress on a number of fronts. And it's nothing untoward. We all understand that it's very complicated thing to do to have you know 200 countries to have them agree on the way forward each one of them has a different head each one of them has two eyes so it's going to be very difficult to make a movement it's a huge animal the un is but of course we must do what is right one of the things that we had agreed to do was to stock take but of course to this time the stock take is not developed countries versus developing countries where the developing countries under the Kyoto protocol didn't have any commitment now it's everybody so this global stock take then it means what are you doing as kenya what are you doing as Botswana? and also are the developed the annex one countries helping you it's their south south help so we do all of this stock take to say who is helping who, who is working with the other one, how much are we making progress in those emission reduction targets that we set out. And those emission reduction targets, remember, it was the first time under the Paris Agreement that we came up with what we called INDC. Initially INDC, now NDCs. Because initially they were intended and then they were now certified by our own parliaments and governments to say, well, we think it is doable, it makes sense to do this, but it is conditional on. So we went to take a global stock take on, you know, what's the other, what, whilst Africa is making all of this enormous commitment in terms of emission reductions, adaptation and everything else. What is the commitment? How efficient, effective is the commitment on the other negotiating partners? Are they able to live up to what they had said they would do? So it's very important that we do this global stock take. We should not do it with the vigor of arrogance, but rather do it with the level of understanding that it takes two to tango sometimes so i think we need to be realistic of course the train is moving the world is becoming much more dangerous to live on in terms of climate and uh, they, our people are suffering the consequences unfortunately mm. there have been a lot of calls as we move forward to the global state tech which is actually now happening this year uh, for the first time ever one of the things that is envisaged to be a major thing in dubai i'm listening to you speak and africa actually and developing nations agreed to ndcs and there's been a lot of calls in terms of making sure the whole thing process is just and that uh, the pre-20 emissions are handled but then when you look at it the pre-20 emissions they are handled under the ndc so have we moved from Annex one countries, annex two countries, where there was clear set responsibilities in terms of the Kyoto. Let's first uh, step back a bit. 
Sophie, you know, the uh, we have the convention. The convention was agreed in 1992. What you're talking about, the CBDRC, the Common but Differentiated Responsibilities and Respective Capacities, is a principle that we agreed under the convention. That while we recognize that there is this problem called global warming and climate change, we we'll differentiate it in terms of responsibility for the problem and also in terms of the capacities to deal with the problem. So that's in the principle. The principle also, there are several principles under, under Article 2 and also the objective of the Convention. Article 2 says there's this problem called climate change. We must do it within a time to make sure that our systems will adapt and our development will continue without uh, negative consequences on our development. So all of those statements, when you read into them under the convention, yes, this is now what we're trying to implement by using the protocols and the agreements, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement. We won't know what's going to come out of the COP28. But maybe at COP30, we will have another agreement that will renew the level of commitment and the level of engagement. All of them trying to address the convention. So the convention still remains. That one was signed by our presidents. We are all differing in opinion in terms of how we implement the convention. This is why sometimes people are stepping out of this protocols and Paris agreement and what have you. It's not that the commitment to the convention has gone. No, it's just that we differ in terms of how we should implement those objectives and principles that we put under convention. So the convention is still there. It's uh, nothing is going to happen to it. It's, it's cast in stone. It is these little steps, which we call the agreements and protocols and what have you, that uh, we're always going to try and negotiate the basis of. To answer you in the short term, no, the, the, the CBDRC, the Common but Differentiated Responsibilities and, uh, and Capacities, will forever remain. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that are happening today. In 1992, solar and renewable technologies were like, oh, very difficult to get, very expensive. Some people were having the technologies they're not willing to share. Then came China later on in early 2000s, late 1990s. And then we started seeing two shops, one shop in the USA, one shop in China. So we could choose and go. Of course, there's all these technological differences. But now at least we have a lot of movement inside the EU, inside the US, inside China. And all of these people are owners of technologies that Africa needs, whether it is for farming and agriculture, implements, technologies, you name it, drones, AIs, whatever. But now at least we're at a conversation at the table where we can say Africa needs this. And the opportunity as we go into global stock day for me is for Africa now to be prepared to say what exactly do we need instead of saying we want you to reduce the 1.5 degrees but go back and say when we're saying 1.5 or 1.8 or 2 degrees in terms of development what are we talking about we're talking about food security what specifically under food security how, how do we address those challenges of food security so that then if your objectives are not smart it's very difficult to measure progress on 
uh, on objectives that are not smart. So then smart means simple, measurable, etc. etc. So the more smart our objectives as we go into defining the, the new commitment period at COP28. After COP, we're going to do global stock take. At COP28, we must also agree that, okay, because we have failed here, because we have succeeded here, what are the new targets? And as we do that, we will then have to say, how do we make the new targets smart so that they are measurable? If I just came to you and I told you, oh, please help me address my food security, and you don't know what I actually mean, the next global stock take, again, is not going to agree. But if you told me I need the 10 bags of coffee beans, then at least I can measure against those 10 and say, were they quality coffee beans? Were they 10 bags? But if I just say food security, my objectives are not measurable and simple. So what I'm trying to say is our next level of detail in the NDCs should try and be as specific and smart and simple as possible to allow a future stock take to be meaningful. Is that supposed to be like country specific? Of course. Uh, remember, the implementation will be at the local level, at the country level. This is why we're giving the NDC. So each country is going to take a commitment to say, I can reduce by 15% on this baseline, by etc. Et but when we take the global stock take, we don't say... Now, Kenya or Botswana have not reduced us. We say, well, all of us are not making a good enough progress. But yes, it means each one of us has to go back as countries and sit down and actually say what our nationally determined contributions are and be specific. And then we can have a special report that consolidates them and says this region, these countries, and call for resources on the basis of that. Resources in terms of information, technologies in terms of AI and other remote, whatever, whatever we, we will need. Even if it means a, 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 a spade, maybe we don't have that technology of a new spade. Mm-hmm. So that also calls in terms of countries looking back to action is on the ground. Reality is that as we have the international negotiations, working together as sectors, streamlining things, looking into how can the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Energy, the Ministry of Health work together and now where it's one project, consolidated funds, but then how can we be smart enough, not just only on our objectives, but also be smart enough in terms of our spending and working together, streamlining things back at home to, so that to make sure that the little money we have is effective on the ground and resilience is being built, economy resilience is being built. So being smart, not just on the other objectives, but also on our way of doing things and consolidating things and working together. Precisely. Now, remember, we don't trust each other. We call each other corrupt, we call each other this and that. If we participate in the Chatham climate roundtables, some of those countries, people, even if you go into the negotiations with them, they see you as corrupt governments. They see you as taking money and you have natural resources and you're using this money to fight, to kill each other, to fill up your own individual pockets. They see some of these things and they blame us. Of course, I mean, I'm not saying Africa is to blame, but I think 
Yes, precisely. That's the point. Sometimes our transaction costs exceed our deliverables. So, for example, maybe the people in the village uh, just need a bridge, a little bridge, you know, a concrete bridge. How much would that cost under some self-help pro program inside the village? Maybe if you give them 30,000 US dollars, they'll buy the cement, get all of the concrete, build that thing, and they, they have adapted to the problem of flooding. But instead, we're going to hold a 50,000 US dollar workshop, produce a 100,000 report to try and solve a 10,000 US dollar problem. So sometimes our transaction costs need to be re-looked at. Intentionally or unintentionally, people continuously call for some of the money to go directly, not into government, but to go directly into communities. It's not an easy thing to ensure that happens. So I'm hoping that even our regional climate weeks and all of those Africa climate week, etc., which will be part and parcel of the Nairobi group of meetings. I hope we can be realistic. Let's get the rural people come and tell us what they need. And then we can have a very smart objectives to say, by next year, we're going to make a hundred communities in Africa, the most vulnerable, at least adapting to the current climate, not even the future, because the challenge is always going to grow. But I think let's use these regional climate weeks to make develop uh, appropriate responses to help our people, the vulnerable people, the most vulnerable in our country. We know them to upgrade their the adaptation and our coping strategies. Mm. Sometimes what I feel, David, is that there seems to be a huge gap between the government understanding of what the communities are happening, like the government sits in cities and these communities are somewhere within. And that call or that you've just made in terms of the Africa Climate Weeks, I think it's very critical because one of the key issues that I've seen while reporting within Sub-Saharan Africa is that we have so many good adaptation projects that have been done, but the communities do not even own them and are not even, even using them. Why? Because because information comes is actually top down so the government doesn't really understand its people very well what are what the knowledge they have what are the solutions that are, they want that they, they believe should come from them what do they need because climate change is not new it's just that it's new that we call it climate change now but this changes has been happening in communities but there's that whole thing of where the government sit in cities and then there is money coming from a donor and then now we go to this identify this particular community a and then we go to the communities and tell them this is what we need you to do but you see there's been no that back exchange of information to understand what they know what is their problem what do they need and so at the end of the day you find that these uh, initiatives that you're doing are not really helping build capacity in the ground or build, build resilience in the ground and i think it's a, a, as we look forward to the future i think it's critical to look into like what do these communities know what is the indigenous knowledge that is available what do they need and what knowledge do they have but um, there's no one called government. You are the government, I'm the government. Under simple rules of engagement, in the rural village, they'll respect the headman, they'll respect the village elder, but it doesn't mean they cannot go to him and say, you know, my father, I was thinking we should do this. We're having a problem. So those conversations are taking place in the rural settings. Yes, you are very right. I've worked for government for, like I said, uh, more than 25 years. And the last five of them, I was at uh, 
uh, senior government advisory position. And sometimes I would send my own director to go and get me a project uh, concept. And he goes, and that's exactly what you're talking about. He brings to me, and I will trust him that he's doing the best that there is. Only to realize later on, no, we only chose his relatives. So it is us who are to blame. Remember the ACW, the African Climate Week, are held every year. Sometimes I think in certain regions, I think uh, the Asia Climate Week is held like twice a year. So there's nothing wrong in having the media and everybody else and, the, and putting pressure on all of these advisors and tell them that next time, let us bring the most vulnerable and have a story by them to say, and we should say to them, they shouldn't say, give us money. They should tell us, help us here. And then we say to the many young people who are unemployed, we say, go and supervise and, and develop the project proposal. And then we give them a little job. They will learn, they will know, will be investing in our tomorrow and building the resilience and capacities we will need in the future. The other thing is youth engagement. We're not bringing in the enormous amount of uh, very brilliant minds. And I think we're making that mistake. I hope when we go to the ACWs and we inside our own in-country workshops, etc., we will try and talk to the people on the ground, not the youth from the universities. Those are already condemned because they know a totally different sort of adaptation. For them, adaptation is getting a job. For the youth in the rural area, the adaptation is producing the maize, the food. This one is getting a job and buying a cell phone. So I think we really need to also refocus. And these people, we've talked about them, we've documented them in our NDCs, in our national communications reports. We say Africa is very vulnerable. The IPC says, says that, that the only continent in the whole world that is vulnerable. That's why we even have Africa specialized reports on climate change. So we know that the world is sympathizing with us but man oh, I don't I, I don't understand you guys sometimes but I think we <laughs> we should never give up oh a lot of things wanting there and you're very spotlight when it comes to the youth because that is true that's I think I think the biggest challenge we're having not just the youth but even the indigenous groups anyway when it comes moving forward then I just want us to so that we can summarize this this conversation uh for the global uh stock taking in Dubai what should we expect first of all we should expect the truth and nothing else but the truth. This is to say, how much have we done? It might be a very simple statement, but I think we, we need to start building confidence in each other as Annex 1 and non-Annex 1, developed and de developing countries. And um, that trust can only be meaningful for the way forward as long as first of all we agree that we made a mistake it's like a truth and reconciliation uh, meeting we sit down and trying to divorce and you have to tell each other the facts the truth and nothing else but the truth to say i'm sorry all right then the next thing we should then ask for time as africa i hope we can do that at cop 28 we shouldn't rush to start talking about 200 billion Sometimes we want 200 billion and we don't even have the capacity to 
eat that 200 billion. Even if they give it to us tomorrow, we don't have the institutions, we don't have the, I mean, some of our GDPs, if it took, uh, let me just give you something that I used to tell negotiators when I was training them from Africa there. Okay, now we have 100 billion. And in Cancun, we had agreed that 50% of it should go for mitigation, 50% for adaptation. The IPCC reports that Africa and SID, small island developing states, are the most vulnerable. So, okay, and there's how many? Say 50 countries. If it took 50 countries in Africa and uh, 12 countries that are small island developing states, or 15 of them, and you put them all together, there'll be less than 60. Oh, okay, for argument's sake, let's say 100 countries will belong to Africa and small island developing states. And if you divided 50 billion by those 100 countries, you're talking about 500 million to each one of them. Supposing you decided, okay, let me give each one of you 500 million years to some of these countries, 500 million is so much money, they can't even use it. And this is annual. So I think we should go back at COP28. We should ask for a bit of time and ask for special reports and give instructions to Substa to say, Substa, go and run in-country workshops to specifically say, how are we going to increase the adaptation? It will be country-driven, which is the thing that we always insist on, that we don't want these fly-by-night uh, consultants coming from Europe to tell us what we should do. So it will be country-driven, it will be region-specific, and it will be specific to the problems that we have on the ground, at least insofar as the current climate burden is from global warming. So I, I'm hoping that we can have a very simplified approach into the global stock take and the outcome should be a very simple report that says by 2025 we should have these reports that say this and the target is to have 2,000 most vulnerable communities assisted with climate change adaptation and this is what we're specifically talking about. David, I'm listening to you speak and I'm wondering, is Africa really ready? Would it ask even to ask for that particular time? Because see what happens during this negotiation. I as country A, going to the COP, yes, Africa is negotiating as a team, but then again, the side negotiations that also happens. You saw what happened in terms of loss and damage, some countries coming together and saying, oh, this is what we're going to do. Now see what is happening in terms of the carbon initiatives and all that. You know, there's all this money dangling around for countries and all that, you know. Are we really, you know, <laughs> can we say that? As in, are we ready? Yes. You know, small steps will lead us into the way. You're very right. It's, it's so frustrating as a, as a lead negotiator. Um, we would agree, even from a G77 into uh, Africa group that we're going to stick. As soon as we get into the meeting and we were just about to agree, then we start getting divided along language lines. French go that way, the mother, the grandmother, Britain calls the English speaking to dinner. It's very difficult for the even 54 countries to stick to each other, let alone now the 200 countries. All right? But, man, we see this. We saw it in Glasgow. 
when we were negotiating for big projects in Africa, and suddenly somebody is called the site, he takes the project, and then uh, we're told, no, he's representing Africa, and of course the project dies, because it was not, he was, like he said, he ran for the money, and then he forgot all of us. And um, so you're always going to have those things. Now, the best thing to do is let's be realistic. The problem with giving the money to governments is they're always going to do that at the central government level. But there's a lot of pens and feet and brains on the ground, including the very young people. So let's set targets that we're going to get as many young people into and train them and develop the capacities to project implement. And then let's have that as a conduit to address the vulnerability of climate change for Africa and in our communities. Can it be done? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm a farmer and um, I always say to the boys at the farm, my helpers, and I say, you know, we can sit around the farm the whole day and talk about how are we going to chop a tree to make room for a little more shamba to plant. But the good thing is to take the eggs and go and start. So we need to take that very first step. But yes, you are very right. I used to say to jokingly, I must caution jokingly, I used to say, you know, Africans are like chickens. During the day, the social order, the cocks are there playing, the mother hens are teaching the baby chicks what not to eat. And then you bring in a little reward, like maize or corn, sometimes it's even soil, and you pretend, <laughs> then the social order breaks down. The cock will jump on top of the little chicken. And that's how you catch each one and you take one and you go and cook it. By now, we should have learned these particular lessons, right? I hope so. I'm honored to be part of the team that's hopefully going to be uh, looking strategically at the outcomes of the uh, SIS Advisory Board to Africa, EU. And I hope, I hope we can be as simple as possible while still writing it within the fashion of writing outcomes. Because sometimes we will go there and then start talk, arguing about the language that it is not strong enough. When a child tells you, I'm thirsty, he doesn't tell you you need uh, bottled water. He just says, I'm thirsty. Go and give him water. So sometimes we just have to be very simple. So I'm look, really looking forward that we can have a, a meaningful report. It's not going to be easy, but uh, I'm hoping that the ACS, the Africa Climate Summit, usually when we advise them, the poor government leaders will accept our advice. But it is up to us how we couch that advice, that that advice become realistic, simple, measurable, and um, targeting the most vulnerable, the people who need that. And I'm hoping that we can, that can be done. Mm, I hope so. Just just before I let you go, I, I finally, in terms of internationally, you talked about build a trust, and I think the global skeptics should, you know, be a momentum, a moment in terms of looking back and saying we're sorry and building that particular trust, which has been broken. But one of the things that when you look at the the, the stoptic, you should actually look into the issues mitigation, including response and measures, adaptation that is loss and damage, means of implementation where we are talking about finance and all that, and we started with you know talking about hundred billion by 
2020, which has there been a lot of push and pull, whether it's been delivered or not. And now we are talking of needs, financial needs that are running into trillion of dollars. How do we build trust and make sure that this stock tick doesn't end up being another process? How does a process build that particular trust, David? It's a very difficult thing to do, and it's a very difficult thing to address. I think the only way we can have trust addressed is to be realistic. That means coming down to the ground and talking about the things that everybody can see. Unfortunately, as Africa, and I hope our our subsidiary body negotiations can go back and say, what is the impact on the livelihoods? the continued impact you're very right we go into one trillion now but again we haven't even addressed the question for what we're saying give me the money for what and those people don't trust us with money because they have seen they continue to see what happens with our natural resources as we plunder them so the best thing to do i hope is that we can have a report that is going to say to COP28. Please give us the resources to go and do the in-country assessment of the financial needs. The finances as expressed in the NDCs were done as a desktop. If I said to you, give me the actual list of projects, there's no list of projects, not even in the national communications. Just storyline, storyline, storyline. So it becomes very difficult to measure. At the same time, if you go back to the UK national communications, the Australian, the Norwegian, the Canadian national communications, you'll find they're going to build a flood defense uh, project. They're going to do this. They're going to do... We don't have those projects. We only have, like, we're going to have food security. So I think we should inward look as Africa and come up with a project. But this thing of trust, I think... While it's important that we build a trust, the only trust that is going to make our government collapse is the trust that we can generate with the people. A hungry African is more dangerous than a hungry lion. And that's what government, our presidents and members of parliament are afraid of. So if we can help them address that trust between government and the people inside our own countries by coming up with actual projects, then they will trust that something something is being done under climate change. But they always hear 100 billion money, but they don't see things are happening on the ground. And the only way, the only trust that we should be worried about is this particular trust. The other trust between us and the developed countries, it's so deep. It's colonial master, it is historical, it is current. Sometimes it is an attitude. It is sometimes it is racist, sometimes it is religious, sometimes it is this. So oh, that one is very big. Rather, let's focus on what matters to us most, which is making sure that we can build a trust to say as climate scientists, as climate action pressure groups, that when we say we're going to build vulnerability, let's build it. Even if we did one or two projects a year, oh man, people will like climate change. But people don't see these things. They see workshops, they see uh, reports, but they don't see anything on the ground.
Very, very, very interesting. We have to end this conversation. And as usual, David, thank you so much for your time. But before I let you go, what's your final word? Africa should uh, wake up to the... Yeah, Africa is no longer the weeping baby. You know, somebody said the other day, I think it was Ruto, said something like, if I have put you as my advisor and I know more than you, then there's a problem. So people are hoping we can help them address climate change, but they're not seeing us helping them, and that's not good. So I hope we can be as realistic as possible. And it is only happening in Africa. If you go to... Uh, Brazil, uh, South America, if you go to Asia, Thailand, what have you, and other places, Bangladesh, people are working big projects on climate change. But here now the movement is very slow, very, very slow. Our politicians have to understand that is one thing. You cannot tell someone to conserve on an empty stomach. For example, David, you are ahead of your family. If you get to a point where as a farmer, as a livestock keeper, all your livestock are dead because of some failing rains and everything, your food, uh, your farm is no longer yielding on it, anything, you cannot provide for your family, then that threatens the essence of you being the man and the head of that particular family. And I think and that is actually what climate change does. And I think political class need to understand one thing. These communities, they will not wait forever. As you said, a hungry African is more dangerous than a lion. And one of the things that the longer they keep being hungry, the more easier they will not even be governable in the near future. Exactly. And if we can help our politicians understand that, if we can help them address that key um, message, then hopefully we can start talking about meaningful climate action. Not action that talks about and pointing fingers. When you point one finger at the Europeans and the Americans and the Chinese and other, three other fingers are pointing towards you. So I think our reports should build our trust between ourselves and those that are vulnerable in our communities and our youth. And then also our reports not only the ones that comes out of COP20. That's a high-level policy thing. But I think out of that, that, we must come back from COP28 and sit down as Africans and look at the the projects that will make us survive and stop fighting for projects, but rather cooperate on this project. David, thank you so, so much. Thank you. I appreciate your time and I hope to see you here in Nairobi. Yep, thank you and bye-bye. That was David Lasole, a seasoned climate change negotiator from Botswana, talking to us there about the global stock take and what it means for Africa and what Africa needs to do there in terms of making sure that their climate actions are smart, they're measurable, and that they lead to resilience back at home. Now, remember to access this Africa Climate Conversation podcast episodes. Please check us out on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, africaclimateconversations.com website, and every other channel you access your other podcast from. For now, thank you so much for listening. Koheri, my name is Sophie Mbogwa. Africa Climate Conversations. Thank you.